Okay, if you would please turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. I'll be reading Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Father, help me in my bodily weakness, in my throat, that nothing be a hindrance to unfolding what You have from before creation ordained that Paul would write while he was in chains in Rome to the Christians in Asia Minor. May we see it. May we see the beauty of your beloved, our Savior, Jesus, and what all that means to the glory of his name. Amen. Last week, we looked at this one long sentence in the original, in the Greek, from verses 3 through 14, and saw the whole forest of it. And so this morning, as we begin to land the helicopter and get down into the trees of detail, and thus get into the controversy that has been brewing and been going on within the church world for the last at least 1,800 years. This is what I want to say. Do not get your eye off the ball as we do this. See, this passage, it's not about intellectual type Christians debating the issue of election and predestination. Just for argument's sake. Actually, when I get around those, even those who theologically agree with me, and I can just feel that's what they're doing, I'm done. This passage is about worship. It's about praise. It's about God's glory. It's about a deepening of our love for the Beloved, our Father in the Lord Jesus. It is about a deepening of our thankfulness of what our salvation really means. And it is about growing our assurance of our salvation. Ephesians chapter 1. It is meant to be known. That's why it's written. 
It's meant to be understood and to be believed and to be cherished so that we can say along with the Apostle Paul, Blessed be our God and Father who chose me before the foundation of the world for the purpose that His glory the glory of His saving grace be praised through me. Don't get your eye off that ball. So now, if you look down at the text, I want you to notice the huge two words that pop up. First one, election. In verse 4. The Father chose us. The second one, predestination. In verse 5, He predestined us for adoption. And again in verse 11, having been predestined. Okay, listen carefully. Every church group, every denomination has a doctrine of election and predestination. Every professor who is a Christian at Biola University has a doctrine of election and predestination. They have to. All of us believing Christians who believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, we all have to, if we're thinkers, because they're biblical terms. So, first, He chose us to choose here the word. It means God decided on this one or these ones and not that one or those ones. He chose. Predestination means there is a place. There's a destination that the ones have the place. That's the destination part of the English word predestination. The pre part refers to time. That it was beforehand. Before people arrive at that destination, it was predetermined they be there. You were... In other words, he says, destined beforehand. You were predestined. In Ephesians 1, the place of destination is right there. It is adoption as sons, daughters, children of God. In other words, Paul says, we have been predestined to become His children. We've been predestined to be born again, which produces faith. So we've been predestined to be believers in Jesus, which means we've been predestined to be justified because we have faith. We've been predestined to be saved. Let me broaden it out now a little bit. So therefore, in theology, historical theology, systematic theology, the term predestination, what it's referring to 
is place, really, two places, hell or heaven. That's the destination part. The pre part means one's final destination is decided by God, not only before we get there, pre, but before we were ever born. Actually, before He ever created anything. Okay. Could you hear that so far? Okay, I want you to hear this. All thinking Christians agree with, I, with what I just said. Thinking Bible-believing Christians who think, they all agree with this. There's no disagreement here yet. And not only that, what I'm about to say, every thinking, Jesus-loving, Bible-believing Christian believes what I'm going to say, whether they refer to themselves theologically as an Arminian or a Calvinist. Those are just two historical terms, one coming from a man named James Arminius. The other from John Calvin, Calvin in the 1500s, Arminius in the early, late 1500s, early 1600s. And those terms, what they are, they're these historical terms that don't have to do with whether one believes in election and predestination. The terms refer to those terms get at the core of one's understanding of what election and predestination mean. Okay, let me just say this. Uh, there's four people here that go to Biola Christian University. My daughter, in, the, in her Tory honors, so for 12 hours a week, sits with her other seven cohorts around with one professor who, they don't know who's going to show up in that school. Numbers of them are theologians and have PhDs in other areas, and they read great books, and they read Bible. And I'm really happy she gets to have that kind of dialogue. And I'm thinking of two. There's two persons, really smart, both love Jesus, and they fall on opposite sides of this issue. I'm happy. The side that I don't agree with, she can pick their minds as she chooses. Why do you believe it? Let me hear your arguments. That's what real education is about. Okay, now let's get back to it. Both of those professors, one would refer to himself as an Arminian, the other a Calvinist. They both believe the following. In the past, before creation, God decided to save many members of the human race and to let the others perish in their sins without a Savior. We all agree on this. Both sides of this issue believe God chose some individuals to be saved, and to pass over other individuals and allow them to suffer the consequences of their sins. We all agree on this. Where the divide happens is over the question, does anything that we, human beings, the creature, 
does anything that we do have a causal effect on God's decision of choosing? That's the issue. Is election conditional upon the actions of us creatures? Or is it unconditional? The Bible is clear. We all agree. God chooses. The issue is on what basis does God make that choice? Make that decision. Follow me so far? So let's, if you're still there in Ephesians, let's read verses 4 and 5. Paul writes, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. That's where I would put the period. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Let me offer to you an interpretation of this text. When Paul says here, God the Father chose us, chose you before the foundation of the world, he means His choosing is connected, inseparable from His knowing. His omniscience. He knows all things. Past, present, and future. Perfectly everything that will transpire. Including human willing. God's choosing is utterly connected with His knowing. And so what Paul is saying is here is this. Before God ever created anything, He looked down the hallway of the future before it ever happened in His omniscience. And He saw. He for Saul. In other words, in his foreknowledge, he saw which human individual sinners would of their autonomous, self-determining free will choose Jesus as their Savior and be saved, and which ones would not. He saw the future and based upon His foreknowledge, chose those who chose Jesus. You see, the Bible's clear. Uh, remember the Philippian jailer in the book of Acts. He cries out, Paul, my, what must I do in order to be saved? And his answer, you must, sir, you must believe in Jesus. And, and if you do, you will be saved. And He did. And God foreknew that He would before He ever created that Philippian jailer. Before He ever created you, He knew 
what your self-determining autonomous choice would be. And based upon his foreknowing it in his omniscience, he chose the jailer. He chose you to be saved in Jesus Christ. You can see this in Romans 8, 29, when Paul says, For whom God foreknew, those are the ones He also predestined. And not only that, though, you've got to get it clear that it is true that nobody can come to faith in Jesus unless God's grace comes first by the Holy Spirit to do something. In theology, we call it His prevenient grace. Prevenient means coming before. Without that, no one would ever believe. But once God's prevenient grace, the grace of the moving of the Holy Spirit upon the individual in hearing the Gospel to try to woo them to faith in Jesus. Once that's all done now in the box, now the person is there. And they will either choose Jesus or they will end up not believing, rejecting the message, and perish. So if you got two persons listening to Billy Graham preach the Gospel, the Holy Spirit is there, He's wooing one, then chooses, after all, the Gospel's preached and the wooing, He's saved. The other rejects it. She's lost. The final decision the final worker determining eternal salvation is the person, the creature, not God. Let me just summarize that, what I just said then in a body. It goes like this, look. Eternal salvation consists of God sending His Son in His incarnation to do the work of salvation on our behalf in order to die for our sins and be raised from the dead. Jesus purchased it all. Okay, That's point number one. Secondly, what He did needs to be preached. The Gospel needs the good news of that goes out so we sinful human beings hear it and are to respond and to be saved or to reject it and to be clearly hardened and lost. So, first, Jesus' work. Secondly, the message needs to go out. Thirdly, the work of the Holy Spirit has to happen. Grace has to be there or no one will be saved without God's grace of the Holy Spirit wooing. So the third point is the Holy Spirit comes. He woos. He's doing a work on the heart which now causes the, the sinner, the persons, to be in a position now they're able to believe and be saved. And they're able to reject and be lost. Which brings in point four. The final piece of the puzzle. Man's will. Now that all that's happened, we sinners are left 
to our own final, autonomous, self-determining choice. And if we pull the lever, we're saved. If we don't, we're damned forever. And God sees who it is who would pull the lever of faith and who wouldn't. And He saw it before the foundation of the world. Based upon their work of believing, of choosing Jesus, God chooses them to be saved in Christ. And so when Paul says in verse 4 of Ephesians 1, He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. It means His foreseeing who it is would choose Him and the, the way He preordained they would be saved is in the Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, a little twist on that, but it's connected. In dealing with Ephesians 1, it goes something like this. When Paul says, He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, he's not referring to God choosing individuals to be saved, and thus are saved, but rather, He chose Christ, and He chose those who would believe in Him, not individually, but in a group sense. In other words, He chose in Christ a, a people. A people group. The group is made up of all of those who would make the ultimate decision to get into Christ by their self-determining free will. So what Paul is saying is that he chose the group to be saved in Christ. That group is what is chosen. Each individual has a choice to make themselves a part of that group. The elect. The church. How? By them choosing Christ. Okay, some of you know me well enough to know then. I, I just hope that if anybody who holds that view and they're sitting here, I want to represent, at least, if, that's just, I might be missing points, let me know, but I want to, where they say, yes, you got it, that's, that's what I believe. Okay. I want to represent, I don't like straw men. Okay. But I don't think this is at all what the Bible teaches, what I just said over the last ten minutes. It's very disappointing I got members of this church to look, well, really? All right, what am I going to do? This life is wonderful. I don't think it is what the Bible teaches overall, and I don't think it's taught here in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 6 in particular. But there are many, many Christians many pastors and many Christian theologians and professors who argue that this text in Ephesians 1, verses 4-6, to only teaches that God chose Christ and an undefined number of persons who will choose to be in Christ by their ultimate self-determining will. 
They say that Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 is not an election or a choosing of particular individuals, but it is an election of Christ and the church. But which individuals become part of that elect or part of the church, God does not decide. The individuals decide that. God has decided there will be a church. Absolutely. He's decided to make for Himself a people as He did Israel, and He's making for Himself a people, the church from before the foundation of the world. He's going to have one. Who it is that will make it into Christ, be a member and a part of Christ's church forever, is not God's decision. It is ultimately in the power of each sinful person's autonomous, self-determining will, which God does not act sovereign or rule over there decisions in us ultimately causing them. Ephesians 1 4 is clear. God chose him and he excuse me, he chose us in him in Christ, the chosen one. So, nope, I don't think that's what it says. I don't think the full scope of the Bible teaches that. I don't have time to deal with the full scope of the Bible, the larger biblical theological structure on this issue today. I, I think I added at least two sermons this week when I was working through this. So my intention is to try to do that, I don't know, next week, week after, later. But this morning, let's just look at verses 4 to 6. Paul writes, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. So first, I want you to notice, God is the subject of the action of the verb. The verb is chose. The one doing the action of choosing is God. The word is eklegomai. Eklegomai. You can almost hear the word election in that coming over to English. And it means to choose. It means to select. It's God's choice. Okay, now look, look, look again at verse 4. Then the rest of the verse, it gives three crucial pieces of information about God's choosing. You've got to ask. God chose, and I teach some of my Greek students, as we diagram sentences, is there a direct object? What is the direct object? Well, here, the direct object is the word us. That's first. Secondly, he tells us the realm in which God does this choose? I'm this choosing. It is in Christ, and He tells us the time of His choosing before the foundation of the world. So first, the direct object 
of God's choosing is the word us. I think there's five Greek students in SYJ. So it is the word hemes or hemos. My daughter just told me, okay, I gave her the nominative. Okay, that's fun. Okay, and hemos is the plural accusative. Okay, first person. Thank you, Lindsay. Gosh, sit in the back. Okay. All right. It is us. God did not say. God chose, and he could, Paul could have written this. God chose, and then used the verb sozo to save, and, and put it into an, make it an infinitive, sozane. Thus, he would have an infinitive clause, which would be the whole object of the verb. He could have said, God chose what? To save us. Or to save believers. And then that would elicit, yeah, he could definitely be meaning there. He chose, God wanted to save and he chose to do it. And therefore, God sent Jesus and he made salvation possible before the foundation of the world. But it's not what it says. He chose the direct objects. Paul says, it's us. Which makes his choice personal. He chose us, Paul says. Not a nameless, faceless, undefined group called the church. But from the larger group of sinful humanity, from among Jews and Gentiles, He chose us to be in Christ and to be saved. Paul's writing, he says, He chose me. That's why the us. Me and you Gentile believers in Jesus to whom I'm writing. If you ask me the question, well, how do you know the word us refers to individuals and not to the larger idea of the church? And I have been asked this question. My answer is because he's talking, Paul, a Christian, is talking to Gentile Christians. Us. So let me say it this way. It, it would be like me saying at a home group of members of this church, okay, I want everyone in here, if you love Jesus, if He's your Savior, if you're in Christ, I want you to raise your hand. And at the home group, everyone raises their hand. And then I say to them, isn't God good that He caused us to be born again? To quote 1 Peter 1.3. Okay. Again, now that got recorded. Someone transcribes it word for word. We have it written on paper. Joe said, 
to all the hand raisers in that living room, isn't God good that He caused us to be born again? It's written. There it is. What would you think if someone then asked you later, do you think Joe meant individual persons in that room when he said, God caused us to be born again? I mean, how do you know Joe meant? How do you know Joe meant? That He caused particular individuals to be born again. Isn't it possible Joe meant some undefined group called the church, which does consist of all those who are born again? I think you would think that question is strange. And you might be wondering, why are you even trying to push such an idea? What is an agenda going on here? Obviously, I meant God caused us in this room to be born again. A hand raised. Isn't that awesome? In Ephesians 1, therefore, God caused us. Me, Paul, and you, Gentile, individual Christians, to whom I am writing and treating you all as hand raisers. Talks. It's like what he said in Romans 9 when he said, even us whom he called. And I'm going to read the whole context of that, just not the whole, but part of it. In Romans 9, Paul writes this, starting with verse 22. God, desiring to show his wrath, And to make known His power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order order that He would be able to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand. For glory, even us whom he has called, not from Jews only, but also from among non Jews, the Gentiles. So, the first thing we see in verse 4 is the direct object it is us, me, Paul, and you Christians, I'm writing to. And then Paul gives the realm in which we're chosen. In Him. In Christ. Christ Jesus is not the chosen one in this text. But the ones who are chosen, the us, they are chosen in Christ. Well, all he's saying is there is no such thing as the chosen. There's no such thing as the elect. There's no such thing as God's 
saved people outside of Jesus Christ. The Savior through whom He does it all. That's all He's saying. Those who are chosen come in union with Christ by definition. He puts them into Christ. They are the ones in this life who will come alive to Christ. They will believe in Christ. In Christ means salvation comes only one way. Through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And then, Paul gives the time of God's choosing. Even as He chose us in Him, chose us, okay, now He gives the time. When? Before the foundation of the world. God's choice was not done in some boardroom with all these persons sitting around the table whom He foresaw would choose Jesus and thus based upon that, let's come to an agreement that I'm going to choose you in Christ. No, no, no. It was done before there was anything or anybody other than God. Before the foundation of the world. You see, when mankind in the garden in Genesis fell into sin, God didn't go, uh oh. <sighs> okay, gotta, gotta, gotta figure out another plan now. Oh, gee, Jesus, why don't you go save them? It's not how it works. If that were true of God, He wouldn't be God, He wouldn't be immutable. He wouldn't be the unchangeable, eternal One. Creation in sin and redemption in His eternal Son becoming a human being in order to accomplish it and the elect to whom He is, those ones He is saving who were predetermined before He ever blew into existence anything that is not God. It was all done, all planned, before the foundation of the world. Some of you have this experience. Because as I said last week, Paul writes things in chapter 1 of Ephesians that almost nobody believes when we first become Christians. And it is, and many of us go on through life and just, no, I can't stomach it and we die. And you're saved in Jesus if He saved you. And it happens, absolutely. But those of you who have gone through, I see it. Do you know that experience? Because now you put aside a presupposition about who God is and what salvation is. And there's something... Let me assume, for instance, what Joe was saying this text means now. That's what happens. Isn't it amazing how all over the Scripture you see things about God you never saw? For instance, in the book of Revelation, just think about why is it written this way in chapter 13, verses 8 to 9? And all who dwell on earth will worship it. See, that's not a good thing. That is, who? who's going to worship it? Everyone whose name has not been written. 
before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Or in chapter 17 of Revelation, we read, And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast. God's choosing in verse 4 of Ephesians 1 happened before creation. Before the foundation of the world. And then Paul, he makes it clear that we are chosen unto salvation and sanctification. See it? He chose us that we should be holy and blameless before Him. And every one of them will ultimately be in the future impartially here. And I'm done with that. I hope to come back in weeks to come as we continue through. But what I want you to notice is that in verse 5, Paul essentially restates in different terms and adds something to it. He gets specific about the choosing now. When he writes, He, God, predestined us. That's the object of the verb predestined. He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ to Himself. For the life of me, I cannot figure out what those guys or gals were thinking around the table in the ESV when they decided not to translate in or to Himself. I don't get it. But anyway, it's there. Again, God is the subject of the verb, of the action of predestination, predetermining. It parallels what he just said. He chose us before the foundation of the world. He predestined our place of becoming His children. It's personal. God predestined us. He set us apart beforehand. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. God did not simply predetermine a salvific plan. He did not, here in this text, simply predestine a plan of salvation so that it would therefore be possible for people to choose that plan as opposed to another. Your employer gives you three options of a medical plan. Which ones do you want? Choose now. And you might choose this one, you might choose that one. God made a plan of salvation. Some would choose it, others would not choose it. It's not what He says. The plan from before the foundation of the world included His predestining us. It included predestining who? would become His objects of mercy. Who would become His children via 
adoption through Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means new birth. Not the way. Unless you're born again, you never see the kingdom of God. And Paul goes on to unfold this in the context of Ephesians. Just a few paragraphs down for a minute. Just notice it in chapter 2. Paul will say, after we've all born into sin, we, we, we all have zero desire to trust in God, to believe in God, to follow God. And then in verse 4, he says, though this, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. And Paul goes, pause. By grace, you have been saved. And he says, He raised us up with Him and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. In Christ Jesus. Adoption is personal. God does not adopt plans or nameless masses of humanity into an idea called the church and they might go ahead and pull a lever and get themselves into it. He adopts person. Now earlier in the sermon, I said where the divide over the different views of election and predestination occurs is based upon the question, does anything we do have a causal effect on God's choosing? Is His choosing conditioned on something we creatures do and causes, therefore, God's choosing? Or is it unconditional? Now, I think Paul's already answered it. If you're not convinced yet, it's clear the end of verse 5. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Now, just for a moment, I I think the NIV and the New King James Version are more accurate in translating that word that is translated purpose here. It really should be, I think, be good pleasure of His will. That's why God predestined. Not something outside of Himself. Predestination is based on according to God's will. It's owing to God's good pleasure that He gets in willing some to be predestined to become his adopted children unto salvation in Jesus Christ. So, dear, precious Christian, 
your salvation did not begin with your hearing the Gospel and believing it's true and you're coming to Jesus Christ. All that happened. You did. You exercised your will to believe. Absolutely. But your salvation began before the creation of the universe when God planned it all out with you. In particular, personally, in mind. God planned the history of redemption. He ordained the death of His Son and His bodily resurrection before the foundation of the universe. And you, Christian, are not an afterthought. You're not an accident of will. You're not an accident of running across a Gideon's Bible. He chose you. He chose you to be saved in His precious Son, Jesus Christ. He predestined, He predetermined you would be adopted. He would become your Father. He would infuse the Spirit of His Son into your heart, crying, Abba, Daddy. And Paul says in Ephesians 1, this is the glory of His grace. Paul is saying, this is God's happy heart, good pleasure to will to have mercy on you, Christian. Careful. Careful that enemy thoughts don't come in so that you can't see that that is clearly written. But then why doesn't He save everybody? You're missing it. The wonder is that He saves anybody at all. The focus is on God's good pleasure of saving us to the praise of His glory. Later on, Paul will write to Timothy. This stuff is so embedded in Paul. He'll say to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.9, It's God, Timothy, who saved us and called us to His holy calling not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace 
which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. I want you put your clock on. We have about six or seven minutes. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians for a second. I want you to ponder Paul's words here. In 1 Corinthians 1, start with verse 27. Paul writes, and this is the same verb he uses in Ephesians 1, but God chose what is foolish in the world in order to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not. That's what He chose in order to bring to nothing things that are. In order that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Paul just said God chose particular kinds of persons to be or to comprise the church. He did not choose the church and then leave it up to humanity to decide what it would really look like. And he had a goal, Paul says, in doing that. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And if we didn't get it yet, in the next sentence, Paul gets blatantly clear about it. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. Or the way the New American translates it. It is by His doing, not yours. His doing, you are in Christ Jesus. It's almost as if Paul knows people will come down the line saying, God doesn't choose who is in Christ, but He only chooses Christ. And, and, and the idea of the church. And thus He's ultimately choosing those persons who of their self-determining free will will find themselves strong enough, smart enough to believe and be eternally saved. And so Paul says, no, 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 no. God chose individuals. He chose the weak. He chose the foolish. He chose the stupid. He chose the outcast. He did it on purpose. He chose what the church would exactly be. It is by His doing that you are in. Jesus. So Christian, think about how it is that you, a sinning, broken, ugly you came to believe. Cling. Find Jesus as the treasure for what He really 
You see, if you think, what do I mean? What do I mean? Just, just stop and think, why did I believe at age 19? Some of you know my story. I wrote about my story. But why did those things change? I didn't know then. I said, look, why was I hungry to read the Bible? Why is it that after reading, nothing new came into my mind that I didn't get raised on as a, in, in, as a Roman Catholic kid? Now I'm 19 years old. There's no new information, but something happened when I read the Bible for the first time and read the red letters in the Gospel. And I said to my mom, why didn't you ever tell me about Jesus? What happened? Was I smarter than my buddies? Or still unbelieving siblings? No. No. He predestined me to be adopted. And I was adopted then. I didn't know what happened. It took me eight months to find out what really happened. And he did it before the foundation of the world. When we get that, as Paul says here in 1 Corinthians, it will remove all boasting. And so finally, as I close here, I want us to hear closely the words of the Lord Jesus. In Matthew eleven twenty seven, our Lord says, no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal the Father. Knowing the Father depends on Jesus choosing to reveal Him to the individual. If He doesn't mean that, then it makes zero sense. He doesn't do that for everyone. But, I want you to hear the very next words Jesus says. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to Me! All you who feel you're in labor and you're heavy laden, and I promise you, I'll give you rest for your souls eternally. We should preach like Jesus. No one can know or can come Unless I will it. And therefore, and every kid in this church being raised here, he says to you, therefore, come! That's what we tell them. And we stop being God. 
and trust His Word. Stop, Joe. Come. Father, thank You for Your indescribable mercy. Thank You that You do not present Yourself as a finite, non-sovereign creature, which would be to a horrific future for us who think or even say. But You have us carved into the palm of Your hand. And You will surely complete the salvation that You started when You drew us to Yourself, called us to faith. And so we know, Father, we will persevere. And we, I hope we cry out, show us Your glory. Show us Open our eyes, the eyes of our heart, that we may see what we're still blinded to is such undone, sinful, broken children of Yours. Do it, O Lord. Work powerfully in Your people to the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.